Hi, I'm Rajorshi Dash and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. I'm a little nervous today because I will be talking to a former colleague, a very well-known poet, a very well-known photographer and someone who uh, whom I've seen very closely working on these gorgeous posters for several talks and events at Andhra College for Women. Neetu Das is a birder, bird photographer and poet. She has published three collections of poetry, Boki, Cobite and Cyber Proverbs. Her work has appeared in several anthologies and journals like Poetry International Web, Protilipti, Muse India, Eclectica, Northeast Review, Poetry with Prakriti, Vaivya, Poetry at Sangam, Uncanny Magazine, Almost Island, Diaphanes, The Indian Quarterly, etc. And this is, of course, the bio note from her book, The Cyborg Proverbs. And like I said, she was my colleague. She teaches literature at Indrapras College for Women, University of Delhi. So welcome, uh, Neetu. I am uh, really, really grateful that we are having this conversation, especially, you know, that I completely forgot about it and overslept. So thank you so much for doing it. Thank you so much, Rajashi. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. I... Go ahead. No, I was actually, um, you know, thinking, as you know, this is like named uh, Queerness and Storytelling in India. Mm-hmm. And I have always seen you as someone who is very unconventional in the way they uh, work, in the way they, you know, write, uh, dress. Someone who is, whom I shall, uh, you know, typically define as not very normative. And that is mm-hmm. how I see queerness, you know, in my works. So I was just curious that you don't use the, the you know, these labels for your works, of course. But in, and I was reading this uh, poem Cobite from your a book by the same name, which focuses on Bobai's relationship with his father and the task of painting. I was wondering if, you know, uh, there's a way in which souls can be queer. Uh, the fact that they may not fit into the norm and they refuse certain expectations also of what kind of work they should do. So I was wondering if this is, you know, something which can be queer or do you think it would be like an imposition of thoughts on your work? Um, thank you for this question, Rajashi. I won't think of it as an imposition because I do believe readers have the freedom perhaps to interpret uh, text any way they wish, uh, wish to. And also because uh, as you so uh, nicely put it, Probite does talk about the possibility of a difference, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, Probite, mm-hmm. uh, it was earlier called Bobai Tells a Story. And I would say perhaps it fits in with the questioning of, you know, uh, or maybe even trying to find out what storytelling is all about, which is what uh, your podcast is about, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, when I think of the earlier title, Bobai Tells a Story, I think I named it thus because I was kind of thinking about uh, the politics of storytelling, um, who is allowed to tell a story, who isn't allowed to tell a story. 
And uh, to my mind, you know, the interpretative lens that you used in order to read uh, Crowbite, I think uh, perhaps I would agree because queering happens in Mumbai and his father being able to uh, rethink perhaps what is deemed um, what is deemed acceptable or not acceptable by the uh, normative systems that are in society. I would also say uh, uh, it's also about the economics of it. You know, what does the clock mill in, in the poem stand for? And what kind of things do we discard? Like, you know, the, the cloth that is discarded and also connected to the ecology of it all, perhaps. You know, for instance, the cloth discarded by the cloth mill turned into uh, works of art in Bhabai's hands. Right. And as you pointed out, it is also ostensibly, I think, about uh, labor connected to caste and how um, hegemonic, perhaps even Brahminical versions of work may humiliate and further exclude someone who is already, uh, you know, peripheral to to everything. I would say, you know, Bhabai is peripheral. He's not really significant in the larger scheme of things. And, you know, also as we move towards uh, the closure of the story, you know, what is possible after, after the closure is, you know, what I was concerned about. Uh, because he shapeshifts, you know, how uh, shapeshifts, he escapes. And I guess it could be read uh, subversively as a kind of queering, if you wish, uh, because it's a kind of no to um, the canonical Maybe even a more to the uh, rational because a lot of the story happens. Uh, the story that Bhavai's uh, father tells him, you know, the dream that he talks of, the dreamlike state that he recounts, is also uh, non-rational. In fact, non-straight, if you will. Mm-hmm. I was actually thinking a lot about some of these uh, poems, especially the poems that I have uh, read or taught, you know, which has crow as a mm-hmm. as a symbol um, of, uh, I'm not sure, like I'm thinking of Ted Hughes and um, I remember there was also this one Netflix series, um, was it The Last Stories, if I'm not mistaken, but I think it was a raven and not uh, technically a crow. And I'm wondering what these images signify, like, you know, like Julius Caesar um, and some of these other Shakespearean uh, texts also have images of the crow. So I was wondering why, why the crow and if there is a way in which that liberates, like that kind of shape shifting that you were referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people think of tattoos immediately when they see <laughs> crow on the title page and um my um my the way i use the crow i think is very different you know i don't really use what perhaps could be seen in hughes you know a kind of theological systems uh within which his crows uh kind of the, the kind of spaces that his crows inhabit uh whereas i think uh the way i see crows and because they're so uh, symbolically, they're so important to me. I would perhaps see the crow as as the other, as someone, as something, as a bird uh, that is not really recognized as um, mainstream or as beautiful. Uh, someone who is or a bird. You know, I keep using the the uh, the human pronoun for for crows, uh, but you see, it is 
difficult for me to see crows as um, as birds that are included into uh, spaces easily, and therefore this otherness inability to conform to uh, constantly be seen as a dark uh, presence. I think that's how I uh, how the how crows figure in my work. Mm-hmm. And and the kind of uh, it's a kind of recurring motif in several of my works. Uh, crows appear, and and this is usually the way the way I see crows. Mm-hmm. I I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no. I instantly I was actually thinking of uh, the black sparrow in um, Fandry, the movie Fandry. Um, yeah, yeah. It's actually a drongo, which oh. belongs to yeah. It's it's a drongo. The the it's not a sparrow in Fandry. Uh, this is the bird that's speaking. Sorry, uh, because it's highly drawn in uh, in the in the in the film. Of course, it's it's very powerful. It works very powerfully as a symbol of you know what do you follow, what do you run after, mm-hmm. and what does it mean to to the protagonist. So yeah, it's a drawing, but I know what it uh, what you are referring to. It really works well, I think. Yeah, I think I think actually you corrected me earlier as well. Now I'm remembering. I <laughs> yes, I I I may have because I I have corrected a few people about the <laughs> idea of <laughs> the black sparrow in Fandry. <laughs> I think it was like, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it's on me. It was a student presentation. Yeah, uh, it was a student presentation. Yeah, I think, and then <laughs> that's when you um, maybe talked about this, uh, maybe in 2017 or 18. Yeah, if I'm not. Yeah, it was a student's paper presentation. Yeah. I don't know, it's like, it's kind of funny. I'm like thinking about those presentations and, you know, uh, like in a way, like missing them also because I haven't really had an opportunity to engage with undergraduate student presentations here, although they do research, but there is no like conference or seminar as such. Anyway, um, so I was, I was wondering like then, and because the this book, and of course, I'm not just talking about this book here, but then uh, you do sketch a lot and you do sketches of birds. And this book, uh, Crowbite, also has a couple of sketches. And I was wondering, uh, I'm sure this these are your sketches, right? Yeah, they're mine. Not the cover, not the cover, uh, the ones inside. Mm-hmm. And... And I was wondering, like, uh, I know you explain why it's the crow, but I was wondering, like, you are someone who actually is a photographer, right? You do uh, travel a lot and you have spoken to me or others. Maybe I have overheard how difficult at times it is to just catch those movements and to make sure that you're getting the picture that you want because you have to keep waiting. So I was wondering, like, uh, this process of waiting, is it very similar to the process of uh, editing a poem or wait for, you know, some kind of inspiration? Or is it something that you see very, like, do very separately? Basically, I'm wondering if there's a connection between these two kinds of labor that you are invested in. Yes. um, uh, When I uh, started birding, I used to think a lot about the whole process of image making because that's something I'd always been kind of obsessed with. And, uh, but when I started thinking about photography and uh, all the issues around photography, 
mainly regarding you know what happens when I blow up an image when I look at a close up of a bird um, when I think about the processes of identification of kind of pinpointing pitting down the bird as it were into you know trying to me- make some meaning out of that name out of what that bird stands for what its feathers are like what its beak is like etc and uh, when i got involved so deeply involved in um, looking at birds trying to study them photograph them um i kind of forgot you know forgot poetry for a while i know forgot is such a strong word but it the seduction of uh, the image of image making was such like actual uh, visuals uh, that the whole act of making things visible came to uh, you know came to came to exercise such power over me that i forgot for a while uh, what it meant to deal with words and uh, at, at a, that stayed for quite some time for a couple of years not not that i wasn't writing but i wasn't really involved in the act of uh thinking about poetry mm-hmm. and also uh because when i thought of uh photographing birds um i thought of the questions around you know how to insert the bird within within the image you know how to focus it how to capture it you know such a violent word how to capture it and um as opposed to say how to capture words and construct meaning differently of course you know, it's just uh, simply put it's just a difference between what is the verbal and what is the visual but here uh, because i was trying to you know i was trying so hard to find moments of conjunction between birding and um, birding bird photography and poetry because i tried so hard to travel back to words that i thought of finding similarities between between the two acts of finding words and finding birds and uh, and and that's when i thought of you know it's you know editing post processing maybe they're, maybe they're similar activities but now i think that it was a very naive kind of an understanding of you know this various types of image making and uh, even though i do sometimes go back to the simplistic understanding of you know editing is editing uh, a poem is similar to post processing in photography uh, they are not really similar and and um, i have had to struggle with this realization and but it's not uh, something that that makes me sad this inability to bring the two together kind of force the two things together the fact that they are separate is also good for me i believe because of uh, the way i practice my um i don't know, i don't want to use the word art but the way i practice the way i live i feel that this struggle gives uh, gives it more nuance more um, more layers perhaps mhm so when you say they are different i'm trying to understand because obviously i'm not into photography as you mm-hmm. know uh, even though, i mean obviously like everybody i take pictures but i'm not i don't travel i don't take photography uh, photography that seriously like you do so i'm just wondering how would it be different let's say for for someone like you who is a professional almost you know i i'm not i'm not a professional rajesh but i feel like you are in a way because your images the way you make those posters and sometimes you've used your own 
you know, images sort of to create these posters for college events. And I don't think I have, I have come across a book of sorts where you have published your photographs of, you know, in general, these images. But I do remember there was a calendar, uh, the college calendar that came up, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think 2016, yeah. Where I think it was all your uh, photographs, right? Like, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, because uh, that particular calendar um, documented the birds that were found on college campus. So I thought that was a different kind of involvement. But otherwise, I don't publish my bird photographs. Most, I mean, I... It's not like I'm going to say no to someone if someone says I want to publish your work. But generally, I don't uh, think too um, too much about photographic about uh, uh, publishing my bird photographs. And um, but you see, photographs circulate in very different ways online. And say, for instance, on Instagram, I receive a lot of um, requests from copyleft uh, places, places that. Uh, for instance, some months ago, I received a request from this group which wanted to use my photographs for bird uh, for a bird IDing app, and they said because they didn't have any money, they would you know they wanted me to send them the photographs free, and I and I send them the photographs, and as long as it was just like a kind of simple kind of acknowledgement that this photograph belongs to me. Like I photographed it, not belongs to me, but because it would be available for um, unlimited circulation, like mm-hmm. you know, and people would be able to download the photograph in order to ID the birds. So uh, many a time, I actually think that the way I deal with uh, my bird images, it's 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 different from the way I deal with uh, poetry. Uh, it, with poetry, I think there is a kind of possessiveness, perhaps, and um, even though there is for my bird photographs too a kind of possessiveness, but it it works uh, differently because I feel that because somehow um, I also sometimes think that uh, bird photography should connect with ideas of uh, conservation, should think about, you know, the larger issues that, that the world is facing, you know, like about the ecology, the environment, think about how uh, so many birds are going uh, extinct, etc. So, so the, these are, or at least if not extinct, at least, uh, you know, the numbers are dwindling. So um, uh, my uh, bird photography is also, it also tries to kind of engage with uh, such issues. Uh, whereas I would say perhaps there is slightly more uh, selfish intent in, in the way I think about poetry. Selfish, but not ambitious. You know, I think ambition is something that I don't possess much of, be it poetry or photography. But uh, this intense desire to uh, to be everywhere, I think uh, that's something that I don't possess. There is, I think, a kind of selfishness in uh, the poetry that I write. But that's true for of everyone, right? Would you would you say that, Rajoshi? Uh-huh. You agree? I don't know. I have very low, uh, I don't know. I think I don't see my work as being good enough, you know, sometimes, most of the times, actually. So I don't know. Um, and I'm always thinking that when I'm writing something that is not necessarily personal, you know, 
I'm writing about something which is outside that personal sphere. I'm interpreting also continuously. So I'm wondering, is <laughs> there ethics to that? What if some people object to that interpretation in a poem? You know, mm -hmm. and how would I respond to that? And which actually reminds me, I think once you also take obviously images of human beings, right? And yeah, once in a while, not too often. Okay. And I remember what uh, you have some of these pride images. And I was curious to know, is there a different um, ethics to approaching human subjects in your images? And what do you do if, say, let's say if someone would object to being in that image or also it's a public space, right? Let's say a space like pride where a lot of people come there either closeted wearing those um masks yeah so i was wondering how do you approach human subjects as opposed to uh, animals and spe especially birds of course uh the easy question would be i don't um photograph human beings anymore um, but that's not entirely true because i do photograph people when i find them when i feel this you know sudden urge to to photograph uh, a human person and uh it's uh, but it's also uh, something that I constantly have to remind myself. Uh, I have to remind myself the fact, or you know, questions of consent, questions of you know, what's a public place, what's a private space, etc. And uh, you, you used the example of uh, the pride par parades that we used to have. I think I stopped photographing for that a long time ago. And anyway, they were they were in uh, only on this you know very private, customized privacy settings on Facebook. But that's not an excuse. Um, that's not an excuse I can use because I did this very. Um, I I did this for a long time actually. I um, I photographed women reading in the ladies' compartment in the Delhi Metro, and people um, kind of. Uh, posed these questions and and then after a while I stopped uh, photographing uh, women without their consent in the Delhi metro and uh, because I also tried to actually keep their faces hidden behind their books and uh, mostly because it was uh, a phone camera I turned them into black and white so they were usually very um, grainy and uh, very uh, low pixel anyway but uh, the question remained with me that even though uh, here are bodies in public spaces and um, doing what would apparently seem to be a public activity of of traveling by the metro or of reading on the metro, etc. You know, but but then I felt uh, it was something that you know I, I really questioned the ethics of it because after a while I just stopped because I felt it's not right. And even though some people actually approached me, they wanted to publish um, the photographs with my own write-ups, of course. If I had said yes to it, I would have perhaps also included my own dilemmas regarding this. But I, I said no. I said no straight away because the ethics of it seemed very questionable to me even then. And now, of course, um, I try not to photograph people. <laughs> it's, it's something that I don't really... Um, think is important um, for me as a photographer. Mm -hmm. uh, like I am interested in portraiture, but I try not to get too close to people's pieces. 
And um, yeah, I guess that's my answer. Yeah. And that's interesting because I'm thinking that you are someone who's very generous with regard to sharing. You gave me a lot of earrings, which I still have. I'm carrying them here in Iowa City. <laughs> and, uh, and so there is a degree of intimacy, let's say, um, with regard to sharing um, that I really appreciate. So even when you say that, you know, you obviously have that distance, but sometimes um, that that distance can be negotiated in a way which can be respectful of other people's privacy and what they are expecting from that space, whether it's a workspace or non-workspace, um, perhaps, you know, determines that degree of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And that's not a question. That's obviously a comment. But I wanted to sort of, uh, and because you talked a little bit about ethics, I wanted to uh, know a little bit about the question of labor that you addressed uh, earlier and who can tell uh, whose story. I remember, and this is a question that I didn't send you earlier, but now I'm thinking, I remember once you, uh, it was objected would be a strong word, but you did sort of raise certain kinds of questions about uh, why a very well-known person was being invited to speak on a cast. This was mm-hmm. perhaps in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. And I am also grappling with the question of how I do my research and whether I should not work on certain things, should not speak on certain things. But it is also about who gets invited and who gets to hold those, you know, important spaces, which gives you a lot of uh, visibility. So I'm trying to understand. So the question of who gets to tell the story for whom, does that question shift depending on how the work is being received or circulated? Or would you say that holds true? doesn't matter whether your work is being published or whether you are being invited. You know, it it matters even at a personal level when you choose to do that work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess that was a private conversation. Was a private uh, objection in the department? I, yeah. Was it I, in the public? I think I in the public, but I asked you, are you coming for this? Talk oh, yeah. I, and, I remember yeah. it. Yeah, I said, yeah, I'm not going to attend yeah. talks on past by brands. That's what I said. If I <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, that's my position. And it's a political position, which I don't talk about in social media so much. But it's something that I live by. And something that my research, my academic uh, presence, my politics, uh, everything uh, kind of converges here. And also because even though, um, I mean, I believe that, you know, research has to be subjective. And by subjective, I don't mean apolitical. It means that who you are will be, you know, your research will be invested by uh, who you are. You know, it, it, it'll be, it'll come across. It would, it would be seen, right? And uh, even though I uh, question in my research, you know, even though I have moved away from research, I have questioned um, in my idea of research, things like factuality, data, um, substantiation, evidence. These are these are things that don't really matter to me. And in that sense, perhaps um, my research 
quote unquote research would be very close to how I um, understand poetry perhaps. Um, now, you see also because spaces are um, designed for you, especially if you have been in, um, you know, you have enjoyed some kind of cultural capital for centuries and uh, you know, there's so much gatekeeping. You don't really want outsiders or people who have uh, not really enjoyed or have partaken of that cultural capital. You don't really want those people to uh, to gate crash. You want them out. You you want them to stay out. And I think uh, that's something that uh, one sees. You know, you see it all around. You see it in you. You see it everywhere. And uh, it's something that I've seen all around me. So I believe that that's, that's the truth of the society that we are in. Truth here as uh, not something um, exact, but something that would perhaps change over time, but also something that I have come to believe is, is something that is more or less uh, static. It's static perhaps changing, but more or less static. And uh, the truth of caste cannot really change overnight. And um, I don't think people are working too hard to change it either. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that's my answer to your question. Mm -hmm. I wasn't mm -hmm. expecting this question. I mean, you've asked quite a few questions which were not uh, on the list that you sent me, but it is all right. I, I'm quite, uh, you know, quite enjoying answering this questions of yours yeah i mean i was actually thinking uh because uh you know you mentioned the question of storytelling and labor and so i was wondering uh because i know a lot oh, of it lends itself to that analysis quite easily i think mm -hmm. and uh it's not it's not a difficult reading uh you know if, if you were to uh just i mean as people who are trained in uh, readings of this kind i think crowbite uh, allows itself to be analyzed in this way quite, quite easily. And, um, because there is actually, a, you know, a reference to, a direct reference to, to caste and how Hoba is, is out of that system mm -hmm. and how it is actually, uh, humiliated for, for it to, uh, to not really, because it does not really fulfill the expectations, as you put it, expectations of, um, how he's supposed to paint, how he's supposed to draw, mm -hmm. what he's supposed to draw, actually. Yeah, and I'm actually thinking about painting as well uh, as something which is so much, you know, controlled and the painter doesn't seem to have, especially a painter who is not from, uh, not Savarna, mm -hmm. as you know, uh, and is not therefore getting a say in what they want to paint and are supposed to also provide for their families and it's kind of uh it, it's kind of amazing to think that uh so much of great work has been coming out of uh publishing of the indian sort of new publishers like red river and i was curious to know what has been your you know relationship with your publishers um especially given that you know, even when we think about the Indian um, poetry uh, scene, um, there is less visibility for uh, people, uh, for artists who have a background from Assam or mm -hmm. a background from other parts of Northeast. Um, and I think Aruni Kashyap has sort of tweeted about it now and then. And I was, I was wondering, like, is 
is your choice to move to Red River. And I don't know, of course, about your like, you know, relationship with the publisher, but I was wondering how it has been from the time you published your first poetry book to now. I have had the uh, good fortune of working with uh, wonderful editors and publishers. And um, it has been also because I think that poetry should uh, remain with independent publishers. And I think my journey has been, that is my publishing journey, publishing as a poet um, journey has been to, to consciously move towards um, independent uh, editors and publishers. And um, it's also because mainstream publishers perhaps even till a decade ago, they were not very poetry friendly. They, they didn't really want to publish poetry. And um, so, so the scene has changed, of course. There, there are so many independent publishers uh, at the moment in India and good ones at that, you know, people who are uh, working to, to create because the books themselves, you know, there, there are very high uh, standards that are being kept. Uh, Red River, uh, Red River books are so beautifully produced. The paper is wonderful. The fonts are so, you know, uh, Debo actually thinks about the fonts, the the, the structuring of the book. Um, he thinks about everything. Uh, Debo is the uh, founder of Red River, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a friend. He's a good friend, and uh, he he is you know, the ideal uh, publisher editor because he had a lot of uh, suggestions uh, about uh, the poems that I sent him. And he also uh, had a lot of suggestions about how the book would look like finally and uh, the drawings, uh, the font, all that. You know, he, he, was, he, he, he was so deeply immersed in, in, in the work that he was doing. And it was a wonderful experience working with him. And also working uh, with uh, Hemandivate, um, whose um, poetry wala brought out uh, Cyber Proverbs, and uh, Stephen Schroeder, whose uh, Virtual Artist Collective brought out Boki long ago, that was in 2008. Uh, they're all wonderful uh, publishers and have been working tirelessly to bring poetry um, to the masses as it were. And uh, there's so little um, monetary return uh, in, in mm-hmm. publishing poetry. And, and especially in India, because nobody seems to want to buy poetry. Um, because, you know, a slim volume of verse um, would cost you uh, something equivalent to around uh, three three novels or three collections of short stories. So uh, monetarily speaking, the the reader, the, the reading market, I don't think, you know, the publishers uh, see it as a viable option. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, for someone who comes from, say, the Nautist, um, where I come from, Assam, uh, Assam has a very uh, vibrant uh, publishing history for Assamese poetry, of course, mm-hmm. and, and Assamese um, prose as well, it is novels or short stories. And uh, I think uh, the question of whether someone from the Nautist or let's say a Sam, like someone like me, would get published in other parts of uh, the country or uh, perhaps, you know, in, in mainstream publications. See, there is a lot of um, uh, fetishization also of the Nautist. So there is 
perhaps a, a market for something that would seem exotic briefly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but of course, I would like to believe that that has changed, at least in the last decade or so, this, this looking towards the Nazis as a space of the exotic, I think has hopefully changed. And uh, even though I do uh, still come across people who expect me to write what would be, um, you know, immediately recognizable as poetry from the Nautist slash Sam. And when they realize that my poetry does not fit into those slots, uh, they lose interest because they come with this uh, preconceived um, what uh, assumptions of how someone from Sam ought to write the topics that they ought to choose, etc. So, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, when you are, let's say, if you identify as queer, you are expected to write things which are like, you know, very specific to that kind of uh, life or sexuality, uh, uh, because it's something which I think people are posed continuously. Also, in regard to research, if you're from a certain part of the country or a certain caste or practice a certain kind of life, you're expected to somehow Mm-hmm. sort of incorporate that in your research which is not a bad thing of course but sometimes it becomes very like in the only thing that you're expected to do yeah so i appreciate your uh answer but you have no plans to publish yourself do you like as in as in get- publish yeah i don't know uh many years ago i used to have a blog i used to keep a blog i guess that was self-publishing in those days mm-hmm but no, I don't really intend to publish my own work. It's too much labor. I think the the editors and the publishers should do it mm-hmm. because then to take on this additional work of thinking about the process of getting a book out into the world, the circulation of it, you know, that that's a whole different ballgame. And I think someone like Dipper is really good at it. You know, people who are actually involved in the whole process of finding good work and then uh, seeing through the process of getting that work into into the public domain. I think some people are really good at it. People like Dibbo, for instance. Yeah, I've heard a lot. I'm not good at it. I don't think <laughs> I will sell, I'll be able to sell my own works. <laughs> I mean, people, I mean, especially your students do look up to you. And I, I think you are sort of asked to be the face who sort of, you know, um, explain students certain things because you're very like popular um but yeah Rajoshi, that's, that's that's funny no, i mean you are popular although i mean of course it's up to you to decide when you want to be there as in you know whether you want to present certain ideas or explain certain things or uh, let's say explain a uh, like a course and <laughs> remember the times when we had to uh, yeah, for the orientation, then. you mean? The yeah, the course orientation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember those like moments. People obviously know that you are popular, so you're able to kind of uh, interact with students and have a comfort level with them that others may not have. Uh, yeah. So I was actually, and this would be a nice trans- transition to the question of teaching uh, because we're also kind of close to the half an hour mark. Mm-hmm. And I remember attending, I think it was a book reading of Cyber's Proverbs. And you read How to Teach Jane Eyre, and which you have taught, I think, for a couple of years. And Several years, yeah. Uh, 
And I was wondering, like, what does it mean for an artist, for a poet to also teach? And especially when you're not necessarily teaching uh, poetry, like a lot of people mm-hmm. do in the MFA, let's say, programs, but you're mm-hmm. teaching how to read uh, fiction or or even nonfiction. Uh, mm-hmm. do, would you say that these styles are completely uh, different and uh how would your how do your students respond to the ways in which you incorporate teaching in your poetry mm, okay um see first of all about uh teaching in due you know how do you works uh the syllabus is made for us we do not have any kind of freedom um you know to to rework uh the the given syllabus it's set in stone right so uh but then we do have and i think um teachers in due use it you know this this freedom um freedom to um uh, give students supplementary readings secondary readings which may not uh you know uh which may not agree with the texts that are in the, in the syllabus and um also because you you can insert whatever you want to insert into the classroom space so so i think there is much subversion possible in in the space of the classroom mm-hmm. and uh, also students are not you know one um, i think one of the first things uh, that you that uh, teachers need to understand is that students are not just um, what what are what's the term that people used to use empty vessels right I mean, that you're kind of for or blank slates rather that you are forcing your gyan um, upon them you're forcing in all your various uh, truths down the throats and i think that's the first um, idea that teachers ought to learn something that they ought to learn uh, and um, so that there occurs therefore um, you know a, a kind of equality even though equality is a is very difficult to uh, construct in a space that is so tainted by power mm-hmm. uh, the classroom space so it's it's very difficult to construct that space but one has to try one has to keep trying uh, for instance um a couple of years ago in 2020 when we had the delhi pogrom uh, and then you had the the anti ca um, you know the protests mm-hmm. uh, mainly um, during the anti um, delhi pogrom uh, protests i saw so many of my students you know uh, coming out of the classrooms uh, creating um, you know very useful interesting uh, political spaces within the college campus uh, in fact uh, the delhi flash show was a uh, plan for that uh, for that weekend when um, when several of their classmates muslim classmates were not able to move out of their homes and uh, i remember my 6th uh, semester students they said you know we will not continue with our classes if our classmates uh, cannot come out of their homes if they are going to be forced to be absent you know if they cannot attend their classes because they are muslim and and then they actually went to the flash show you know several of our students went to the flash show and they and they claimed that space um and and they just stood there holding uh, placards without raising slogans without without um you know without doing anything actually they just stood there uh, marking a physical protest um 
on due grounds, you know, uh, on campus. And I thought that was amazing. And, and, and I think uh, the, these are, these are um, moments, you know, when teachers have to, you know, re- I would say perhaps humility is, is the way to, um, you know, you can, you can only process something like this with humility, that here are your students leading you, um, you know, allowing you to see the, the power of protest, allowing you to see the, the possibility of subversion, something that you had taught, you know, in the, in the, um, in this space of the classroom, but you had not really seen them, uh, actually mm-hmm. utilizing that, you know, what you taught was, you know, within the, within the, you know, within the text that you were teaching, maybe within Foucault or maybe within, you know, the text that you teach. And then you think that it's, it's just something bland and, um, meaningless because it's never going to be applied uh, in their lives. But then I was so surprised and uh, powerfully so, actually right. not pleasantly so, but powerfully so that that this is this is what is possible. And I think that's what uh, that's what teaching uh, maybe you know finally the long run it's lesson in humanity. Mm-hmm. I mean, this fills me. With so much of I don't know hope and uh, in a way also joy because I mean I remember those flash shows and uh, I've never seen them as political or spaces mm-hmm. which can be political so just to see them going there and that's also the VC's uh, home right oh, yeah, uh, yeah. so to be there and to stand up for their friends I think that's an amazing amazing uh, gesture and i hope that they were not you know censored in some way uh, by the uh, oh. administration because of that uh, the the police came and uh, stood next to us i think they were just waiting for us to uh, turn aggressive mm. uh, so that they could just you know kind of send us off to jail uh, but but no uh, because there were no slogans you know they just stood there with uh, the slogans on uh, on paper, and uh, and so people had to come and read what was written. And I thought that was also quite um, you know quite, quite an amazing moment because the people who were uh, who had come to attend the flower show they stood there and and read whatever was written, and that that was quite a moving moment for me. And I think um, you know it, it as you say it, it fills one with hope and joy. Mm. Uh, no, they were not censored. Uh, uh, they stood there for I think around two, three hours, and then they uh, they and then we dispersed. So that's I think it was quite interesting because you see, uh, mobilization happened overnight, and one knows you know how difficult it is to mobilize for uh, protests and and also to to have a game plan as it were in place. And and all that you know how how to how to reach the uh, the grounds how to uh, how to move uh, towards that space all that was planned in advance. Just a group came by the metro, a few of us came by, uh, used auto rickshaws. It, it was quite amazing the way everything uh, came into place. You know, kind of fitted together so beautifully. And even though it was also a moment of sorrow, and and it was you know people were people were being mobbed and. You know the homes were being burned, etc. And and but there was uh, there was hope. Yeah. There was anger, but there was also hope. Um, so I'll just ask you, what's next? Then um, are you 
looking forward to publishing something new or is this like and i i don't know how you managed to do so much to be honest you know and i still have your uh, posters from uh, some of these events with me here in iowa so i want it's to know what strategic that means a lot no and also that what you said about the earrings i i really love the fact that you carried them with you you see um nowadays when i when i want to give gifts i don't i don't buy new things i i give them things that are precious to me mhm and uh, i think that's a much more beautiful gift than than buying something new uh, without its own story and i feel that you know i'm i'm giving away a part of who i am so right. so the fact that you carried the earrings all the way to iowa really means uh, a lot to me i think it's a beautiful thing um you know that you mentioned it and you and you uh, mentioned it here too yeah so, no here people actually ask me where did i get them from and i say you know this is a very generous colleague who gave me and i am not sure because she travels so much uh, i'm not sure where uh, she got them from so yeah so we are at the end um of the podcast so um yeah just to ask you is is any book coming out soon like There is a book that I have been writing for a while. I mean it's not a book yet even though I have given it a title and I have you know I have planned everything. And uh but it's not uh writing itself. Um and I have had I mean um I've already thought about it for 2 years and it's moving very slowly. So that's all I can say about it uh for now. because i may not finish writing it but it's it's going to be an elaborate book about birds no no secrets there uh, it's going to be all about birds so that's uh, what i've been planning for a while now uh, but i don't think it's going to be finalized anytime soon yeah and you have let i'm i can also tell my uh, listeners here that you have a beautiful garden and i've seen glimpses of that on your instagram um and so you have a beautiful home as well <laughs> and i'm hoping that someday you know in is this this future you will invite me as well <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course because next time whenever you are in delhi even yeah. though my garden in this new flat is not as pretty as the garden i used to have in in and you know the, the last flat i lived in mm-hmm. because i had a terrace and uh, It was wonderful. Now, of course, I have to struggle with my plants, which is something I never did in, uh, you know, when I had the terrace garden. It's really difficult in my new flat. So it's yeah, yeah, uh, sad maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, and it depends. Like especially, uh, my plants. Some of these plants should not be indoors, but they are indoors. And when I switch on the AC, I have to be really careful that mm. you know, the. Yeah. the draft is not on their side so yeah it, it's quite a struggle but thank you so much for your time and generosity i hope to see you soon uh, either in ip or you know sometimes even outside ip yeah that would be nice is better yeah <laughs> yeah and i'll send you the edited uh, version of this in a couple of days Sure. And be, yeah, it will take me some time, but I think it will be done in a day or so. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rajoshi. I had so much fun.
Yeah. <laughs> right. 